This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Justin Bennett. Hey, everyone. Lukas Heisch. Hello, everybody. Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and I'm going to go ahead and attempt to say his name. It is Sumyajit Prathak. Hey, yeah, almost there. It's perfect. Th- thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Now, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. So I'm a computer science master's student out of New Delhi, and I work as a freelancer in my part-time, usually taking on mid to small to mid-level React projects. Awesome. Now, usually when we talk to people, they're like professionals out in the field, as opposed to, you know, you mentioned that you're a master's student. So are you doing just React on the side, or are, are there particular aspects of this that you're doing now? Yeah, it's related to computers, but uh, we hardly touch web development at all. Uh-huh. So you mentioned that you were doing uh, freelancing? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I really think it's interesting how computer science degrees really don't, in most places, don't dig into web dev stuff very much at all, which is a shame. Yeah, <laughs> actually. <represented. laughs> actually, it'll be, not, it'll be pretty funny if I told you what I have read as a web development syllabus and curriculum in a college. It was, they said, uh, Netscape is the newest browser on the market right now. They had slides on that. <laughs> nice. Wow. Good old Netscape. Yeah, that curriculum probably <laughs> needs a little love. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm feeling uh, very up to date with with uh, that particular line of thinking. Netscape 2.0. Oh, there you go. There is service for the support, I guess. It's it's actually interesting to me. I mean, I know some universities are teaching modern web development one way or another, but it's usually one class and you get kind of the basics of React or Angular and then you're out. And yeah, it, it's just funny to me. It's like, I know that they're kind of focused on theory and things like that, but the flip side of it is, is that most of these people are going to go out into the world and they're going to write real code for real systems. So yeah, why not teach them that kind of thing? And, you know, maybe some low level programming if they're going to do IoT or, you know, some of these other options that are out there. But no, they don't. They, you know, and, and there is something to be said for focusing on algorithms and things, but I haven't always been impressed with what's offered. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of algorithms, I was actually um, reading through your blog posts about JavaScript design patterns. It's a really well-written blog post, so that's, that's pretty awesome. I often see like a lot of times when people are talking about like design patterns, they're talking about them in relation to like object-oriented programming. So you you know you have like the old gang of four methodology. You're talking about like creational patterns and structural patterns and stuff like that. It's interesting that we don't really, or at least I'm not aware of kind of a succinct resource like that. That's just for like functional patterns. And I don't know if that really makes sense as a thing, but it's just an observation. Design patterns that I read, usually the design patterns that the teachers at a university or anywhere, like the Gang of Four or anyone, most of them don't relate to real-world JavaScript projects. I have never used any of them in any side projects or any passion projects. 
maybe the functional patterns that you are saying maybe they will be more useful i'm i'm curious you know you you bring up the design patterns where do you find them most useful for people doing react because i think a lot of times we just kind of lean on our framework or you know wh- whatever we've uh, bolted together to make up our framework in the case of react for our patterns and so we don't think in terms of patterns we don't think about how there's already sort of a designed way to solve some of the problems we're dealing with we just kind of look at how whatever system we're using wants us to solve that particular problem and then we go with it and, and i think sometimes that hurts us because we're not looking at the the larger picture yeah i, I kind of think it almost depends on how we're defining what design patterns are but the way i see it is like especially in react react has a lot of design patterns that have just come out of the language itself that aren't necessarily incredibly react specific because things like view adopt them so like mm-hmm. the render props and child is a function component that's like that's a design pattern of sorts it's like not necessarily super specific to um, the implementation of a component other than you know the things that you had to do to get the interfaces to work correctly. But we have those sorts of patterns. And it's just like a lot of times it's just discovering them. And we don't talk about them in that way, right? We don't say, hey, here's the common React design patterns. We just say, you know, here's a way to use this component or whatever. My thought uh, regarding uh, design patterns is usually like it's like a toolbox. So a lot of times you're using one tool here, another tool here, and it, like just uh, reading through like a bunch of design patterns is the same thing as like buying a big toolbox with a bunch of tools that you still don't know like <laughs> what you're going to use for. Like sometimes you do not have a problem or sometimes you have a problem that you only need like a screwdriver, but you bought the whole toolbox. So what I like to, to, to gather from those is like you, you read and you get familiar a little bit with it and from time to time you encounter like problems that will click in your head like oh i think that tool could help me here you know so this is it's the the parallel with the toolbox uh, i think it's very like clear in my mind like it's like you you get friendly with those tools you still don't know what they're used <laughs> for and like one day we encounter a problem and I was like oh my god i understand now that tool that i saw like Two months ago, that could that could be good here, and you start experimenting with those. So I think that's the that's how things work. But like them, like in the vacuum, it does not tell much about anything. So is, is there an advantage to understanding these as design patterns, or is it okay just to kind of go through life just doing things because that's the way they're done? Actually, uh, I have an interesting story about the design patterns in this. I actually came across design patterns in JavaScript. First time I tried to make an ESLint plugin and I saw the visitor pattern on, and to handle the abstract syntax trees. And that's when I started digging around about design patterns. And that's how I st- uh, wanted to write the article. But eventually I ended up not including visitor pattern itself because I didn't get to understand it properly. Uh, so I wasn't confident about writing about it. I still used it. If it helps, sorry. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. When I started learning about design patterns, it was a similar thing, but it, I mean, I wasn't in JavaScript at the time. So I started my career writing a lot of C++ code. And a lot of that code could get really, really complicated really, really fast, just by the nature of kind of have like object-oriented programming set up, and especially in C++. So design patterns became really useful. And... I kind of looked at it the same way that you were saying earlier, Lucas, is like it was a toolbox. 
and you just like look at your problem and like, I mean, cause you run across things. It's like, Hey, suddenly I had to communicate from this one place to like multiple places in my system. How do I, how do I do that? And then you kind of like over time build up a little bit of an intuition about like what sort of tools that you need to use to be able to do that. And so like, I feel like a lot of times it's just experience and intuition, but that's not very <laughs> scientific, right? Some people kind of take the opposite approach and they just like kind of use the tools for everything, right? And then sometimes it's easy to find a tool that works, but isn't really appropriate for your situation. It might not be easy to, to know about it. So like one common example is like the singleton pattern. Singleton pattern makes a class like a global almost. It's like this thing that you can kind of access from anywhere in your, in your system. And it's especially sometimes useful in C++ because like that sort of thing doesn't necessarily exist. Whereas in JavaScript, you can just like set something in the global scope and access it anywhere. So like having a singleton from that perspective probably doesn't make sense. But we do know that having a lot of global state, it's not great. So in the same way, having a lot of singletons is not always a best practice. Most of the time, it's not a best practice. But without like knowing why to use something and where to use something and what its drawbacks are, it's really hard to make those good decisions about those. So we can parallel this to like some of the React things that we're talking about, like function as a child component. It's like there is a cost to using that pattern. Now, it might be a negligible cost depending on, you know, how wide your usage is. But, you know, it's like things like that that you have to kind of know about, be aware about. How does this affect how my render tree renders, component tree renders? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to both know, like, I think it's good for us to start saying, hey, here are the common patterns that we use in our frameworks because it'll help us like build consistency. And it's a, it's a thing that we can point people to, to say, here's this pattern and here's why you use it. And oh, by the way, here's a term that you can use to talk about it so that other people understand what you're talking about, which is one of the big things in design patterns is just having a common vocabulary. Well, the other thing is, is you mentioned that not all patterns are good for all situations. And so it's also good to know, okay, this is kind of the default pattern. And this is where we're going to deviate from it when we run into these other circumstances. And so we can have a, a language for that too. You know, here's the fallback of it. Th this isn't working because of this reason. Here's the fallback if this isn't working for this other reason. Yeah, 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 for sure. This piece of knowledge is even more important. And this is a piece of knowledge that a lot of times it's like people don't pay attention to. It's not how to use the tool. It's like, when is it the time to use this tool? Like, what's uh -huh. the situation? And everything's an experiment. So what do you do if it fails? Like, this is the interesting part that I think that it's very, it's a knowledge that's very difficult. And a lot of times for beginners, it's like so like overwhelming because they say, oh, now I have a book with like 500 things I have to read. I have no idea where this is coming from. And usually you just learn by like talking to more experienced people. They're like, oh, so this is how I do this stuff. And then it clicks on your mind. Oh, I understand. That's one of those chapters of that book. <laughs> it talks about that. And then you go back to the book and now you read with another eyes and see, so it, this is difficult. This is not easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the craft, right? That's the, the work. Yep. Yeah, I find it like and the React ecosystem in general just has so much stuff out there. Like if you want, I'm sure we could like look up some good blog posts on design patterns and React. I'm sure they're out there. 
there's just like so much information in general. You know, a lot of times people just get into it and they get information overload. And it's like, all right, I just need to get something done. Let me start. And, you know, sometimes that's sufficient. It's like one of the challenges to what we do is just like over-engineering things. Sometimes we make solutions that are far too complicated for the things that we're actually trying to achieve. So just do what you need to know. And if you have an immediate problem and it's a well-scoped problem and you think there's a solution out there for it, then look it up. But if not, just play with it. Yeah. About the so, third yeah. time you rewrite it, it'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's interesting because there's another blog post written by you. I don't know if I'm going to get the say your name right. Sumiajit, more or less. Yeah, good enough. <laughs> there's another blog post that is interesting that you talk about how to track page visibility in React. Yeah, and, yes. Yes, and then you're using a render prop. This is the good stuff because like you presented a problem, like page visibility. This is a problem we have. This is a problem we need to solve, right? And then you used like a design pattern to solve like a real problem, like say, and, and then next time I, I see a problem that maybe this problem is similar to that one. Oh, I can use the same pattern. So that's a very interesting post too. Yeah, actually, I originally wanted to write only about render props, but there were so many articles about render props, I just wanted to make it something unique. That's why I tried that. It's perfect because like you brought a problem, you brought like a real world problem, and then you applied a solution to it. So this is, yeah, I think this is, this is the way we can learn better things. Yeah, I, I definitely want to echo that. It, oftentimes... It's hard for people, especially when they're getting started, to just jump in to an ecosystem like React and see some very arbitrary like design pattern and be able to glean some like useful information from it. Like even they might come back to that resource later after they have experience and say, oh, okay, now I'm better understand. But like a lot of times people need to see like you solving a problem with that thing, like kind of end to end. And it really, really helps with the learning process. I know my myself tend to learn more now by just like reading how, or looking at people's code and seeing how they use patterns like inside their code. And I'm at the point now where that's like the most useful thing. So like jumping through a blog, a bunch of blog posts isn't always like super beneficial. But yeah, that end end example, I, I thought that blog post was actually really great. Speaking of, uh, I just found a site called reactpatterns.com. So <laughs> it's it's just a bunch of design patterns-ish things. So they, they do have like the, the render prop uh, pattern in there, but there's a whole lot of other things just like covers like functional components and JSX spread and a lot of other things. One thing I'm curious about is which patterns do you find most useful? All, all three of you. That's a really great question. So... I don't know how much of a pattern this is, but at the very base level, I just find like functional components have really just changed my world. <laughs> That's when I really started getting into more modern web dev, React especially. It's just that idea that, you know, with some inputs, you generate the same sort of output makes things like testing so, 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 so much easier. You know, again, I come from an object-oriented, like heavy object-oriented programming background. So this that was kind of my introduction to like, what does it mean to be sort of functional? And that like simple kind of UI pattern has, has really done a lot. Beyond that, I find uh, render props are a really, really interesting pattern because it gives you the ability to have like one kind of top level component that kind of manages different 
areas that you can render to. So like if you have a component that like manages a layout, say, so it could be like a two column layout and you can have a left column render prop and a right column render prop. I don't know, just stuff like that is I've, I've used it a lot in, in some of my code and it's, uh, it's pretty compelling. Same for me, actually, uh, the render props and uh, the stateless functions and all that. Uh, actually, the interesting thing is around the functional components, the developments we have. I recently saw an RFC in the React GitHub repository by Sean. I don't know his full name about uh, React headless components that actually, I think, developed from the idea of having render props and abstracting away the, the non-rendering logic kind of things. And it was a very interesting um, uh, with the new, I think uh, we have a new uh, React release, uh, 16.6, I guess, uh, that dropped yesterday, I guess, or uh, today. And uh, they have included react.memo that uh, works like should component update for the stateless components. And that shows that these are actually the most one of the most useful patterns in the React community, I guess. Yeah, that release is really interesting. Lucas, what did you have? What's your most? Yeah, so yeah, I'm trying to think here. I think I'm going to go with the anti response to that, like uh, patterns that are not useful or like <laughs> the, thing, uh, <laughs> the thing, actually, like I could say, like all these uh, React related patterns, like hire the component, container view, separation, uh, render props, don't make your code like pattern oriented. So this is probably like my favorite pattern now, like going back to basics. Even with container view, which is probably like the most impactful React pattern for me, which is separating when your component is getting too complicated, you separate the side effects into an outer component and the UI and the simple like state management go to a separate component so you can separate those two. Even that pattern, like don't separate too early like the worst thing is like just need needing to, to to look at like seven different files when you just need to change one thing is like a really anti-pattern. So like probably what I think about uh, patterns today is like harder components is amazing, render prop is amazing, container view is even better, but don't use them early. So my my current pattern is removing patterns when I think that they were used early. <laughs> that's that's my current state yeah that i mean that's that's a big thing that we always do is uh over engineer like we get smart <laughs> and pay for it yeah, later that's it it's actually like uh yeah over engineering a lot of times is like a good a good problem to have it's better than the opposite a lot of times right could be yeah it's, like it's just a mess when it's just a mess <laughs> Like I have this problem in one project that I'm working now that is like too many tests. It's really bad, like to have too many tests, like tests that are redundant and things. And it's, oh, it's a, you know, tests that are not testing the correct thing. But man, I remember the days when we didn't have tests. So yeah, for this sure, is, <laughs> this is a good problem to have. I would rather delete delete a few than have That's to it. <laughs> write a whole That's bunch. Exactly from scratch. that. Oh, I love deleting code. Uh, yeah, it's it's so cathartic. It's amazing. Yeah, I've been working on this project. You, you keep talking about uh, over-engineering things, and I kind of did that initially. It's the software that I'm building to manage the podcasts, and you know, so I've been going back and uh, actually rewriting parts of it. And yeah, it's it's really nice when it's like, oh, this is way simpler. 
half the amount of code, right? It doesn't use, you know, as many of these uh, patterns as like we're talking about. It's just really simple to follow. Yeah. Uh, here at ZocDoc, every month we give a prize to the person who deleted most lines of code. Oh, that's amazing. I really like that idea. <laughs> yeah, we give like a small like rubber duck. That's so, wonderful. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to steal that idea. <laughs> Please do it for a better world. Yeah, no, that's so wonderful. <laughs> we went through a migration at work and we kind of built this whole new experience for one of our, our pages. It was kind of like in CoffeeScript and Backbone before. And now it's like really, really reactified. And we just deleted the whole thing today. And it felt so good. It's like, see all that old code go away. It's like, ah, yes. You would get the prize. Yeah. Well, I didn't delete it. Somebody else did. <laughs> I'm still excited about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. I actually have an interesting story about over-engineering. I joined a project midway once. It was a React project. A React Native, sorry. They had quite a lot of views already built in, and they were using Cerebral for state management. And then some developer tried to use the storage system, and they wanted async storage and all, and they introduced Redux as well with Redux Persist. And when I went in, it was a total mess. Like I couldn't figure out anything. And I didn't know Redux. I didn't know Cerebral. I just knew React, Native and React. It was a mess for me. I ended up uh, creating my views only with a set state. And they eventually deleted both Redux and Cerebral. And we shipped with normal component state. That's it. Feels great. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times when I end up falling into this trap of like building too much or making it too complicated, it's because I don't have a really good understanding of what actually I need to do. And oftentimes, I don't know about everybody else, but I get excited about problems and I want to do things like I'm solving a problem and I want to like, I want to make it really robust in this case, or I want to have it, I want to like support this extra feature. But at the end of the day, like we're paid to solve a very particular problem. Like the business says, this is the problem that we need to solve. And we have like some, you know, leeway in how we solve that problem. And it can get you into trouble if you don't have like a good vision for like what you're trying to work on. So as I've gotten more experienced, I've had to like rein myself in and say, okay, what is, what am I building? And what is the simplest way that I can build it? And oftentimes I'll get work now to do, and I will build it the most naive, simple way possible. 
just like, how can, how fast can I make this thing work? And then I'll kind of look at it and like, okay, what are the major problems with this that I have to fix right now? And then I'll kind of refactor it a little bit and fix some things and get it to a state where it's like, you know, I'm comfortable shipping it, but that doesn't mean it's perfect or great. And it's like a lot of times it's like, we can always come back and like make this better. But the idea is just being, it's like, you have to produce value and you don't want to fall in that rabbit hole. Not that it's not a good thing to do sometimes because it also is very educational, but can be expensive. Yeah. I think that one big source of complexity is, I like this term, like change amplification, is that anytime you're going to change something, you need to change in seven different places. So, and this is usually created by those early abstractions. We think, oh, in the future, maybe I'll have like five instead of one. You know, so like you create like a generic way of introducing what it just built instead of just creating a function. And like these early abstractions, they're, they're, they're making like in the end, like if you need to make one simple change, you need to say, oh, I need to look at the constants file. Oh, but there are three components. Oh, but this is composed of blah, blah, blah. And don't forget to update your dependency because you used a library that maybe you didn't need. So this is this change amplification. Like every time I need to touch one thing, I need to touch another seven. This is like a big source of like uh, uh-huh. problems. And this is probably like one of the, the biggest problems with Redux too. Even though Redux is amazing, like the verbosity, like uh, since like every change needs to be like in five different places, this is a big cause of confusion for a lot of developers. That's yeah, exactly I mean, what I was thinking. That boils down to essentially to a single responsibility principle. I have to change this. I have to go touch seven other things. Initially, when I heard the concept, and yeah, it applies to object-oriented more than functional programming, but it still applies. And that is, is that all the code that's likely to change together should be together. Yeah, I agree. Like this is, it's like dependencies. Like when one part of the code has a dependency to, to a lot of other parts of the code, so you need to change a lot of things. And also obscurity, like you change something and you don't know what it's going to affect. So that's the thing, right? When you, when you try to make your code, okay, so like everything that is related to this feature, it's going to be here and they're going to be close to each other. And every time I need to change, it's like this is the almost like the geographical place where I need to be, right? Whenever you need to keep like a bunch of stuff like in your mind, different systems, different files, it's the, the complexity only, only increases. So that's a... Uh... Something that when I started at my current job, I was kind of coached in a lot. It's like, you know, keeping things uh, kind of contained together in one place. So for us, we have our presentational component and then we have like this relay kind of higher order component that's in the same file. So you can see the fragment, the GraphQL fragment that's like related to your actual UI. So, I mean, you have like your data requirements and your presentation kind of in the same place. It makes the files a little bit larger, but it like really has like all the changes for what you need to make in that same place. And it took me a little while to kind of get used to that because I was used to having like a separate GraphQL file and like presentational components. And I would actually pass down like a larger chunk of like data to like some higher order component that would pass it down to like smaller components. And like, sometimes you'd make a data change and you'd have to like find like five files to update. So this kind of method of working is really interesting. 
And I also think it's like, this is a good guiding principle. So if you're working on something and you're thinking, where should I put this? It's like, when you change it, what else needs to be updated and try to put it near that or have it in the same file. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the nice things about JSX, in my opinion, is that it, you know, it puts all those different pieces. A lot of people freak out over like separation of concerns, but you have all that stuff in the same place. So the styling, the the functionality and the layout or the HTML, and it, it all lives in the same place. Yeah, they should, if every time you change one, you end up need to change the other, they should not be separated. So the separation of concerns, I think it comes from, from a time where like maybe different people were, were working on different technologies. Like HTML was built by someone that was not the same person that built, like that did the CSS and was not the same person that did the, maybe the backend part. But today, like when we're working, developing apps, applications and stuff, like most of the times we change one thing, we're changing the three of them. So there's no separation of concerns there. Like this code trip should be closed. And this is, this is an interesting part. I want to ask you, like if they should be together, like what about giant files? Is it a problem for you? So I, I definitely think it can be a problem. If you have a giant file, it means your component is probably doing too much. And it's always, it's always a, a good time to ask yourself, it's like, can I break this down into smaller parts that make sense? Self-contained units that when I change this thing, I don't have to worry about changing those, right? I definitely think that that can be an issue because if you have too much, then it's just, it, it's hard to understand what's going on. It's hard to make sure that you've changed everything in all the right places, even though it's in one file, you know? So it's like, you still have that same sort of, same sort of issue. Yeah, yeah. What do y'all think? I actually agree with that because uh, changing files and uh, scrolling down the a single file looking for uh, keywords, both will cause distraction and context switching. So it really matters the balance of it. You shouldn't have too many files and you shouldn't have too long a file. Yeah, but the thing is, is if you have a really long file, and then I think we've kind of talked our way around this, typically there are smaller pieces in there that could be their own concern. Right. And so then all you have to really worry about is, oh, there's this little nugget in here that handles this piece of the larger functionality. And so you can break that out. And, and that feels like the right answer to me. But for me, it's, it's, it has a whole, a whole lot less to do with the length of the file and a whole lot more to do with the mental load of basically loading it all into my mental RAM so that I can keep track of what's going on there. If I can't follow it, then you know, yeah, then yeah, I need to break it up into smaller pieces so that I can keep the concept that it's encapsulating in my head. Yeah, that's it. Like if we think about heuristics, so we were talking about like a quantity of lines, right? Like line count. So I believe that a much better heuristic for complexity on a file is how many indentations you have. That means that your code is probably like doing a lot, much more than actually number of lines. Because if you think about, if you have, I don't know, a thousand lines, but everything is like simple. It's like a bunch of different instances of the same thing. Like if I have a, a component that has, I use styled components, so I have like 10 small styled components. It's like a CSS, almost like a CSS file in the end. That's very simple. It doesn't bother me. Like those 200 lines of CSS code, they're very simple. You look at them and you understand one by one. They do not depend on each other. But if you get like a very nested code, if you have like a bunch of ifs 
and then you have like a bunch and you're calling a callback like you can see that your indentation is going like far and far that's a much bigger signal that there's some complexity happening there does it make sense yep so that yep. that's usually like the the heuristic that, that i put in my mind when i when i see a file it's like i don't know it's a 400 line file i see like is it is this file just like a bunch of simple things? If it's a, just a bunch of simple things, it's it's okay for them to be here. It's just like, I don't know, an Excel spreadsheet, like a bunch of lines in a table. They're the same. It's just like a bunch of things that maybe if they were in a bunch of different tables, it would be more complicated to find them. But if you have like nested code and a bunch of things and you see that you have a bunch of ifs, a bunch of switch, you have like your React tree is getting very complicated, then then that would be like a alert in my mind that things maybe should be broken. So horizontal scrolling is scarier than vertical scrolling. Uh, <laughs> yes. So because usually in the horizontal scrolling, that means that you have to keep stuff in your mind when you're going deep in the indentation. It's like a NIF happened. So if a NIF happened, I need to keep that in my mind. And if another switch case happened, I need to keep that in my mind. And if there's something inside, if there's a child inside of a parent, the parent needs to be in my mind. So it's like cognitively, when you go like deeper into indentation, it's heavier than just a list of independent things. So the vertical, usually if you if you have a list of things that are like really simple, it's just like you look at one and then you look at another, like they don't depend on themselves. When you have nested things, usually things are dependent on each other. Does it make sense? It's totally. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I feel like you just build up an intuition of on over time, but it's it's hard because like there's a lot of like metrics that you could use. So I mean, whether it's like you know line count or number of characters in your columns, or you know, there's even things like more I guess scientific, like uh, what is it, cyclomatic complexity, but there's these other like relations to these things. And like, if you have a lot of these like abstract kind of relations that can build up a lot of cognitive overhead, even if the code is really simple. So it's just something that you, you play with and rewrite it three times and you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So true. <laughs> That's the only one golden rule that I've found in software engineering. <laughs> It's not right until you've written it three times. And it's probably the, the hardest thing to, 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 to do, right? To yeah. get time to do something yeah. the third time. <laughs> well, it, it, the other thing is, is I get to the point where I've solved it the first time. Like I have a workable solution. It's just not a very nice solution. And I want to move on to another problem. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's an attention thing for me too. Yeah, for sure. I don't think we should ever... We have to get more okay with like writing code that's not always great. So long as it does what we need it to do and it solves the problems to a sufficient level, it doesn't have to be the most performant code on the planet. So long as the performance for your whole system is where you want it to be, it doesn't have to be the most maintainable thing in the whole world. So long as it does what it needs to do and it's simple enough to understand. I mean, right. So essentially what I'm hearing from you is that the third time you rewrite it might not be tomorrow or the next day. It might be the next time you come back around to this code and say, okay, I've got some other parts of the system that have to talk to this and it's not set up well for that. And so then you go and rewrite it so that it's nicer 
to maintain, sure, but also nicer to deal with from the context of whatever you're working on. For sure. I think it's, it's not necessarily the consequence of like how many times we're rewriting it. It's, it's more about what we're learning in between doing those. So we write it once and we use it for a while and it falls apart in places and we learn some new things and then we try to change it and we can't really change it. Then we write it again and like learn even more from that process. And it's just that, that iteration of learning is like by that third time, it's like, you've seen where it falls apart. You've seen where it works well. You've seen uh-huh. where it's hard to change and you take all those lessons and you like apply it to like something that's, you know, better. Makes sense. Yeah. If you're trying to rewrite it three times in the same day, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's really going to do necessarily what you want it to do. Continuous learning is important. Yep. One thing that I, I like to dive into, I know that this is like a whole nother topic for a whole nother, maybe another episode is server-side rendering. And I know that a lot of people are, um, you know, when, when they get to this point, you know, they start looking into using something like Next.js or things like that, depending on their use case. But should, should we just schedule another episode for that or should we talk about it here for a little bit? I think it would be good to like do a whole episode on it. But yeah, it's a really... So I, I've been dealing with server-side rendering at work recently and... It's a complex problem overall, but there's some things that are really hard that aren't obvious when you start working on it that you run into later. So one of the biggest things that I've ran into that's a challenge is React expects that server-side markup and client-side markup are the same on initial render. Like given the same data, it should render the same UI. Uh-huh. I mean, they even say in their documentation, if it's not the same, we consider that a bug. So in React 15, it would do kind of a a really cheap diff. And if they weren't exactly the same, or if there was anything that was off, it would just throw it out and re-render the entire thing. In React 16, it doesn't do that. It just patches it. It like tries to be smart about it and like diffs things and just tries to update the things that are, are different. The only problem is, is like, that's not a perfect algorithm for performance. They don't want to have it like really intensively diff every little thing. So if your markup isn't the same, you can get bugs. And they, they actually say in their documentation, treat this as a bug. So it, it makes sense. It's, it's easy, right? Except, yeah. so we're building a responsive site and we use like logic based on like what breakpoint we're on to render things or not render things. And that fundamentally makes that initial render on the client different than the server. So we like went down this like big like development effort to like make these things responsive. And then we get to this point and we're like, oh crap, (laughs) server and client code aren't the same. So we had to like backtrack and refactor how we did responsiveness to like basically, you know, display none instead Mm -hmm. of like not rendering something. But then you have this whole other world of problems. Now you've got like components that are, their render code is running, but they're not displaying. So you're still, you have the cost of rendering that component. Um, And there's lifecycle hooks that might be firing off like multiple times for different views. So you have to figure out how to refactor that. That that whole thing is a nightmare. (laughs) So welcome, yeah. Welcome to my life on the last year. That's exactly. <laughs> and try yes, and try to find like uh, memory leaks in the I don't know. Like we found memory leaks in our styled components, server side rendering. 
that like we've lost a lot of sleep. So like, yeah, it's a whole new world of complication that I don't wish anyone to go through that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, some, but a lot of times it's necessary. Yeah. In our cases, like SEO is, is, is huge. So even like if you think of Bing, Bing does not run JavaScript and it's like 5% of your traffic. Like, are you going to give up on 5% of your traffic? You need to SSR. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Google, like, doesn't always do it well. And a lot of times you might not be getting the results you expect. It's like, yeah. if you're going to say, we rely on SEO and we don't want to do server-side rendering, you better do some tests. Um, yeah. Because server-side rendering is yeah. non-trivial. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, really complicated. Like, to the point of, from time to time, we think, like, should our React application be the same application, like, be the same application that we use for SEO? Like, maybe we should have, like, SEO pages. You know, that kind of decision. People say you have, like, pages that will attract SEO, that they'll be, like, templates that are really fast and stuff like that. And then... When you interact with those, you get like to your React application that could be like even a PWA or something like that. So this is the kind of decision that you start to make because React load time is not is not trivial, right? There, it's kind of like you traded uh, the load time that are really fast in the template world for like being fast in the interactions with the virtual DOM and, and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's really like counterintuitive for React to do all those page load performance enhancements, and SSR is there. Complicated. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we kind of said we were going to do another episode with this, so I'm gonna. <laughs> That's it. I'm gonna. Yeah. We'll we'll uh, we'll get this scheduled so that we can talk about the the ins and outs and the pitfalls because it sounds like there's a bit to know if you deviate from the standard way of doing things. So the, it's definitely worth being aware of. Before we do that, though, Sumyajit, if people want to find you online, how do they do that? I mean, we, we have a link to your blog, but I'm assuming you're also on Twitter and GitHub and stuff like that. I'm on uh, Twitter and GitHub, uh, both uh, under the name Drenther. It's a gaming handle that stuck with me from my school time. So I, I'll spell it how up. often that happens. <laughs> so can you just type that into the chat and that way we can put it into the show notes so people can find you? All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Justin, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So let's see. A few things. I'll pick the React Patterns link that I found earlier. That's pretty cool if you want to like just see a list of simple React Patterns. Also, I found a performance testing service called uh, Caliber. It's for running synthetic tests similar to SpeedCurve. It's been really, really great. So, yeah, those are my picks this week. Awesome. Lukash, what are your picks? Okay, my pick for this week is a book by Nancy Levinson called Engineering a Safer World. 
So all the time, like we have our applications uh, that are like exploding complexity. We have this reliability and safety issues that we don't want to extend to happen. We don't want it to break in production. One of the things I started uh, looking for was like other engineering places where like it's critical to be safe, right? Like how do you write software for like a, an airplane? The airplane cannot, cannot like fall. How do you write software for, I don't know, like a artificial heart? And I found this book. It's a really interesting book. And the best part is that uh, the PDF version is free. You can download it. So this is my pick, Engineering a Safer World by Nancy Levinson. Lots of knowledge inside. It's like I still, I'm still trying to like distill like the first four chapters. <laughs> it's like a lifelong read. Nice. I'm going to pick a couple of things. One of them is a non-coding thing. It's a book that I've been listening to. It's called Monster Hunters International, fiction book. Just a fun book. I really enjoyed it. I have the next one in my Audible wish list, but I haven't started it yet. But yeah, it was a fun book and I really enjoyed it. It's an urban fantasy, which means that it is magic in our world. So in some ways, Harry Potter qualifies as an urban fantasy just to give people an idea, though most of Harry Potter actually takes place in sort of a, uh, you know, it's a Hogwarts and things like that. So it's not in the real world kind of thing. But if you've watched any of like the new Harry Potter movies, the Fantastic Beasts, where they're in and out of New York and things like that, you know, that that's much more urban fantasy where it takes place in, in our world. And then I've also been playing with Metabase and I've really been liking that to uh, kind of get a view on things you just connect it to your database and then you can uh, tell it to pull different views of, on your data. And so I've been, I've been getting into that. And then finally, I've also been uh, using Stripe because my podcasting solution that I'm building for myself is something that I want to be able to sell to other people. And so uh, I'm working on that. And then one last thing is, is that I am currently looking for people to help me write show notes and things like that for the shows. So if you're interested in uh, doing that or helping me find sponsors or um, doing some development work on this podcasting solution, uh, just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. Um, I'm probably going to be hiring somebody here within the next few weeks. And I know that this goes out in a few weeks, but um, I need especially for folks to help write the show notes because I'm looking for people with a programming background. I'll, I'll probably wind up hiring a few people for that. And so I may not find all the people I need right off. Anyway, if you're interested in any of those, let me know. The podcasting solution's written in Rails, and I think I'm going to use Vue on the front end. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good choice. Yeah, I'm digging Vue. Anyway, so yeah, we'll stop that right there. But uh, uh, Sumyajit, what are your picks? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll pick uh, the website that I post my blog posts on. They have some new features coming out that will be really sweet for developers and getting junior developers some jobs and shit. And uh, the second one, I think I'll pick the Chrome extension, Musly. It's a design inspiration extension. It really helps me because they post some really complex UIs that I tend to implement and learn some advanced React and other stuff. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Um, it's It's been fun to talk and it's it's been fun to kind of dive into this stuff. So thanks for having me. Thanks. Hey, thanks for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.